Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Um, This is Reformation Sunday, as has been communicated, um, but this is not really a Reformation sermon, although it was uh, pointed out to me by Adam earlier this morning that if it weren't for the Reformation, I wouldn't be married as a pastor. So I guess there is a connection. Priests in the Catholic Church can't be married. The Reformation uh, opened up the opportunity for ministers of the gospel to be married. So I'm thankful for that. Um, But this is not a Reformation sermon. It is a sermon on marriage. We are going through a sermon series on Christian ethics. We've been doing this for, I think this is our fourth Sunday. We had an introduction. We've covered the topics of racism and abortion. And today we're talking about marriage. And I want to clarify what I mean by that. When I say we're talking about marriage, I don't mean that this is going to be a sermon on how to be a better husband or better wife. That's not really the intention. Um, Nor is this going to be a sermon that is focusing specifically on the issue of homosexuality or same-sex marriage. I mean, I'm going to be talking about that um, quite a bit. But I have talked about this in some detail in other places, even this year, And so I just want to say I don't plan to um, review that material. There might be some things you expect me to say here today that I don't say. I would just direct your attention to our website. If you go to newlifepca.org and go to sermons, there's been two sermons preached this year on this issue of homosexuality. And the names of the sermons are, are there. You can scroll down and find those. And I've also been writing a blog Uh, answering questions about homosexuality. You go to our website, click on blog, and you can find, um, I think there's 11 different entries right now. So there's a lot of information. I would recommend those to you. Um, This sermon um, is more about why biblical marriage is a good thing. Uh, Don't want to review this material. I just want to try to make the point uh, of why it is that God has set up marriage the way he has in his word. And this is very important for us to be thinking about as Christians because throughout, really, most of the history of civilization and certainly throughout the history of our nation, biblical marriage has always been just assumed. Um, We've never had to explain it. We've never had to tell people why God set it up the way he did. That's never been a requirement. But we have to be ready to do that today because people don't assume that. They don't know why marriage is good, and I think a lot of Christians don't know how to explain that either. So I hope this sermon is helpful to you if that's your situation. Uh, Another reason why it's important to do this is because some of you have perhaps never seen a healthy marriage. Uh, Perhaps you have been divorced yourself, or perhaps you were brought up in a divorced or broken home. Maybe you're one who has only witnessed verbal and even maybe physical abuse in the home, and you look at biblical marriage, heterosexual man-woman marriage, and you say, why in the world would anybody want to preserve that, given my experience with it? 
Well, this sermon hopefully will address that as well. And another reason to do this is because it is true that as Christians, I think we have kind of gained a reputation as being people who are against gay people. Um, I don't think that's a fair accusation, but I think for whatever reason, it is the reputation that many of us have. And what I want to try to communicate today is that we're not against gay people. We're, we're just for marriage. We're for biblical marriage. This is the way a guy named Sean McDowell puts it. Our responsibility as Christians is bigger than merely fighting against same-sex marriage. Our responsibility is to fight for marriage. Same-sex marriage is the fruit, not the root. It's a cultural signpost that indicates just how far we've journeyed away from God's intent for sex and marriage. So I want to try to point us back to God's intent for sex and marriage in this message. And the passage that we have here is Genesis 1. I'm going to be reading verses 26 to 28, and then we'll skip ahead to chapter 2, 18 through 25. This is a foundational passage where God sets up, institutes marriage for human civilization. So very important passage. Um, Please stand now for the reading of God's word. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is where I'll begin. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then moving forward to chapter 2, verse 18. I'll read to the end of this chapter. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father, please open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, after the Supreme Court ruling this past summer in June that declared same-sex marriage to be legal, I think there are some Christians who think, okay, good, that's finished. Now it's time to move on. Let's just not bother with this anymore. And I want to encourage us that that is not a proper attitude to take, that for the reasons that I have already laid out, that 
we do need to be prepared to make the case for why biblical marriage is good. And that's why if you're a single person today, I hope you'll find that this message is relevant to you. I hope you're not going to tune out thinking, I'm not married. What does this mean to me? Uh, you also uh, are called as a believer in Christ to make this case um, for, for biblical marriage. I do believe that over time, cultures can be changed through one on-one conversations in dormitories and on the soccer field and at barbecues as people are willing to speak about what the Bible says. We've actually seen a tremendous change in the view of people toward abortion actually over the last couple of decades. Um, just recently the polls seem to be indicating that more people are pro-life than pro-choice now. Although that wasn't the case for a long time after Roe versus Wade. But I think a lot of that is because Christians have been willing to communicate the pro-life case. And we need to be ready to promote and present the pro-marriage case. So last week, again, we talked about abortion. And the big question was, what is the unborn? That debate revolves around that question. Today, the big question is, what is marriage? What is it? Why did God set it up the way he did? Three things I want to show you today. The first is this. Marriage is intended for God's glory. It's the first thing we have to get. Marriage was intended for God's glory. In order to get this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning and get this kind of broad bird's eye view of what God had in mind and what was the situation and the context in which marriage started. And so that's why we're in Genesis. In the beginning, there was God. Before there was any created thing, before there was a universe or any individual or beast, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This one true God. Three persons of the Trinity. Fellowshipping with one another. Glorifying one another. This great, mighty, eternal God. Full of splendor and majesty and beauty and glory. And that God decides to create. He decides, I'm going to make a universe. And the reason he decides to create is not because of some deficiency in him, not because he wants to get something that he's lacking, not because he's lonely, but because he's this God who is just fomenting with glory. He wants to share that glory. He wants to communicate it. He wants to advance it. He wants to give of himself, And so he creates a universe. Scriptures talk about the earth being filled with God's glory as the water covers the sea. That's what God wants to do in creation. So in the universe, his glory is shown forth. The heavens declare the glory of God, we're told. So we see God's glory in creation. But the pinnacle of God's creation and the primary way that he wants to show his glory is through the creation of humankind, through men and women. And that's what we see here in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then God gives them a task. He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. Let them have control. Let them be rulers. Here we have the ruler, capital R, ruler of the universe, creating lowercase rulers to rule on his behalf, 
to receive this delegation from God to rule over all creation. And we see something very important in verse 27 that sets men and women apart from the rest of creation. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And created them in his image. What that means is that men and women have been created to project God's image, to represent him, to show forth something of what God is like in the way we live, talk, move, and breathe. This is the way God is going to disseminate his glory throughout all creation. If we look to Psalm 8, we get a little bit of help with this. Psalm 8, the psalmist says, You, God, have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, but you've crowned him with glory and honor by being made in God's image. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. That's what's described for us here in Genesis 1. And then the psalm finishes. finishes. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The majesty, greatness, glory of God covers the entire earth by the means of men and women who are created in his image. Now, here's something that occurred to me that I never really thought of that, that is interesting. Isn't it interesting that God did not create the entire universe or the earth already populated with people? I mean, he could have done that, right? He could have created the earth and just filled it with millions and millions of people. And certainly that would be a great dissemination of his glory, but that's not what God chose to do. He chose to start with just two people, Adam and Eve. And then in verse 28, you see the task that God gave them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. That's the command to rule. But what God wanted was a situation where there would be a man and a woman, a male and a female, and they would have children and their children would have children. And the human race would then multiply over the whole earth and these image bearers would then bring glory to God as the human race is perpetuated over the entire globe. That's why God created. That's what God had in mind. Now, we just have to think of that in contrast to the typical view in our culture of what marriage is about. Because here's what you'll hear. And this might be exactly what a lot of you think today. What you're thinking is, marriage is primarily about my personal happiness. Marriage is most fundamentally about self-fulfillment. Marriage is about my feelings of love and romance and getting those feelings satisfied. That marriage is primarily about something that I'm trying to get from somebody else. That's the way a lot of people think of marriage. I hope in the church that's not the way a lot of people think, but you know in the culture that that is the basic assumption. It's like marriage has been changed now, so it used to be that when married couples would take vows, they would say, we will love each other as long as we live. Now it's, we'll live with each other as long as we love. But as soon as we start loving, as soon as my heart doesn't have the same feelings that it used to have, then I'm looking elsewhere. And we see a lot of marriages fail for particularly that reason. 
And in fact, when we look at the Supreme Court ruling, Justice Kennedy himself said this, marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. In the view of Justice Kennedy on our Supreme Court, this is what marriage primarily does. It satisfies the lonely person. That, 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 that is its fundamental intent. But do you see how different that is than what the Bible is saying? I mean, certainly the Bible does meet needs for loneliness. But that is not the primary reason for marriage. That's not why God set it up the way he did. In fact, go forward to chapter 2, verse 18. And look at this verse. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. But notice that what he doesn't say is, it's not good that the man should be lonely. There's a difference between alone and lonely. This passage says nothing about Adam's emotional state or his feelings of loneliness. This is something God is saying about Adam. He's alone. And God doesn't want it that way. And so he's going to give to Adam a helper. I will make him a helper fit for him. Again, verse 18. What does he need a helper for? Is it to help him with his loneliness? No, it's to help him with the task that God gave him in chapter 1 to take dominion over the earth and be fruitful and multiply. What God is saying is the man can't do that by himself. He needs someone to join with him in this. And so I'm going to give him a woman as a helper to fulfill that task. And that task is what disseminates the glory of God. Do you see what I'm saying here? The bird's eye view of marriage from the very beginning is God saying, I want my glory to be over all the earth. And I'm going to do that through my image bearers who are going to multiply. And that is the primary fundamental reason for marriage. These other considerations as important and real as they might be, are secondary. So this guy, Sean McDowell, that I quoted earlier, I'll I'll quote him again, says this, Two become one, not just for happiness or emotional fulfillment, but also for a good that is greater than themselves. No couple's marriage is, biblically speaking, just about them. It's about future generations. It's through marriage that God arranged to perpetuate civilization. That's what marriage is for. Here's a big problem with same-sex marriage. It's not looking to the future. Same-sex marriage short-circuits God's desire to disseminate his glory through the multiplication of his people through heterosexual male-female relationships. So the good thing about marriage here is that it is instituted by God ultimately for the glory of God, for his glory. And I think a lot of marriage, married couples could, could perhaps be benefited, benefited from thinking of their marriage in this context as taking part in a global cosmic effort of God to bring glory throughout the whole earth. And in a sense, that's a very exciting thing and primary over some of our more personal needs. So marriage is intended for God's glory. The second thing is this. Marriage is structured by God at creation. 
When God created the world, he set up a structure for marriage. Very important to consider. This is before any government existed. This is before any court existed. This is before any state existed. God sets up marriage in a particular way, and the job of the state and governments today is not to redefine marriage, but to recognize it for what it is. And so there's a sense in which we can say, even though the Supreme Court has ruled differently, that that court is a lower court than the court of heaven. And marriage still stands as God has instituted it because it was instituted long before any court or government existed. So do not fear, brothers and sisters. Marriage is still between a man and a woman. But as we look in this passage, we see the way that God has structured marriage. First of all, we see that he has structured it to be heterosexual in nature. Verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. So God has created these, these animals and he gives to Adam this charge to name the animals in verse 19. That's part of what it is to take dominion over the earth. Adam is doing what he was commanded to do. Whatever he names a creature, that was its name. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't give names to the creatures. Adam does. And what Adam says is what stands. Because God has delegated to him this task of dominion. But again, we find that Adam needs a helper. And he needs a helper that is fit for him. So implied in that is that there currently did not exist any helper that would have been appropriate, that none of the animals that currently existed were suitable for Adam. And I think we can say that if another man would have been suitable for Adam, that God would have made that other man and given that man to Adam. But what God is looking for is a helper that is suitable for him. And so what he does is he takes this rib out of Adam, creates a woman, a human being, also made in God's image, but of a different gender. And so we see a distinction here between male and female that's very important in God's economy. Male and female are not exactly the same. They're equal in the image of God. They're equal in dignity and glory. Men and women who are saved by grace are equally saved by grace and equal inheritors of God's kingdom, but there are distinct differences. And so God lays this out, and in verse 24, you see as concise of a definition of marriage, I think, as we will find. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. A man and a woman coming together and becoming one. And that is the way God has structured marriage, in this heterosexual way, between two genders. Now, you, you might be saying, and I've heard said very often, why is it that Christians want to impose their view of marriage on everybody else? Why are we insisting on imposing heterosexual marriage on the culture? Why are we getting so religious about this? Well, I mean, my response to that would be this. All laws impose something on other people. 
And in fact, the Supreme Court has imposed its view of marriage on our nation, hasn't it? I mean, all definitions, all laws are making decisions about what is right and wrong, affirming what is good and excluding what isn't good in its view. Everybody is imposing one view on somebody else. And there are still limits to marriage that are imposed in our nation, aren't there? I mean, it isn't the case that just anybody can marry anybody. A a man cannot marry his daughter. Uh, A married man cannot marry somebody else before he first dissolves his current marriage. A man can't marry three people at once. People can't marry animals. I mean, there are all kinds of limits that have been imposed on marriage, and those limits still exist. But what's happened in our country is that the first of those restrictions, male and female, heterosexual marriage, has been removed. And given the logic that has been used to support same-sex marriage, there is nothing to prevent all of those other aberrant arrangements that I have just mentioned from also being declared legitimate marriages. Because if all marriage is, is just simply having a strong feeling toward another person and wanting to be with that person, which is basically the logic used for same-sex marriage, it would seem that that argument would apply to any other opportunity, to any other arrangement. But nonetheless, we still recognize certain limits, and that's a good thing. But they're being chipped away. And if the court has ruled in such a way to change marriage the way it has, I think we just have to ask, what else is it going to change? The door has already been opened to redefine words that have meant one thing for centuries and centuries. That's a dangerous precedent. God has set up marriage, structured it to be heterosexual. But God has also set up marriage to be complementary complementary. Let me be clear here. I I don't mean complementary in the way of like giving somebody a word of praise. There's an E in the middle of the word, not an I. Those are two different words. Complementary means something that completes something else. And when we see here in the text that God has created the female to be fit for the male, what he's doing is providing the woman to complement, to fill up what is lacking in him. And there's something that's really wonderful about this, the fact that marriage is complementary. What what this means is that God values diversity. I mean, here's something that is so ironic about same-sex marriage. Don't we hear in our culture over and over again that we need the perspectives of different, different genders, that in workplaces and in organizations, maybe that are mostly run by men, they really need the perspective of women. And that's absolutely true, and that's right. We benefit from diversity, from different viewpoints, from different genders and different races and different kinds of people. But look at what happens in same-sex marriage. Diversity isn't entirely eliminated, at least in terms of genders. Two men don't get the benefit in their marriage of a woman. Two women don't get the benefit in their marriage from a man. But God has set it up 
that marriage would be complementary, that it would be diverse, that it would entail both a man and a woman. And then lastly, we see that marriage is procreative. That just means that it will produce children. We've already covered that, verse 28, chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. But the point I want to make here now that I think is very important is that marriage between a man and a woman is good for children. That children thrive in homes where there is a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad. Now, of course, there are various dysfunctions that have made that difficult in different families. But as God has set it up, that is the ideal. Study after study after study, I don't have time to present them to you, show us that children born into families and living in households where there's a mother and a father are less likely to be poor, less likely to have drug problems, less likely to be imprisoned. On and on it goes. Same-sex marriage at the very outset withholds at least one parent from children in cases where they're adopting children. That's a serious thing. There's a guy named Doug Mainwaring. He's written an article. You should look it up. It's called, I'm Gay and I Oppose Same-Sex Marriage. And he gives his reasons. And he's, he's not... He says he doesn't give these reasons from tradition or religion. I don't know if that means he's not a Christian. I don't know. But he just says religion hasn't informed his view. The point he's making is it just seems obvious and self-evident to him that children thrive where there's a mother and a father. So he says this, to give kids two moms or two dads is to withhold from them someone whom they desperately need and deserve in order to be whole and happy. It is to be permanently, it is to permanently etch deprivation on their hearts. That's not a former homosexual, that's a person who still identifies um, as, as a homosexual person, says that, just affirming what, what the Bible is, is saying. Children need a mom and a dad. Uh, this is a, a young girl named Grace Evans, 11 years old in 2013. She testified before a Minnesota House committee when that state was contemplating legislation that legalized same-sex marriage. And Grace is reading something there opposing that move. And she asked the panel who was listening to her, she said, which of my parents do I not need, my mom or my dad? And nobody answered. The panel's silent. Because there is no good answer to that question. But this whole issue of same-sex marriage has made it so that it has, to, it has to be asked. So marriage is structured by God at creation as a heterosexual relationship that is complementary between two genders and is intended, although it doesn't always happen that way, is intended to produce children. Last thing, marriage is also symbolic of God's gospel. This is what marriage is for. And this is what's good about marriage. There's symbolism to marriage. And I've got to take you to another passage here, Ephesians 5. Later in the New Testament, Paul says this. He's quoting Genesis 1.24, which we just read at the beginning. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
And then he goes on. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Very powerful statement that Paul is making here. He's talking about this mystery. What does he mean by mystery? Well, it's that when Genesis was written, the passage that we just looked at that lays out the structure of marriage, that it wasn't clear at that time what marriage ultimately pointed to. There was some kind of significance to marriage at that time that was concealed. But once the promises of God in the Old Testament that the Messiah was coming, and once Jesus came to fulfill those promises, once it was evident that Jesus is the Messiah, once Jesus went to the cross and laid down his life for sinners and was resurrected from the dead, and the New Testament began to be written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that mystery that was concealed now became revealed. And now we get this benefit of knowing what marriage is really all about. And that is that it points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It refers to Christ and the church. It is symbolic of the love of Jesus Christ for sinners and giving his life to save his church and redeem them and make them his own. Every marriage is a walking, talking parable and picture of marriage. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. This will transform your marriage if you're married, if you think about marriage in this way. Husbands, you can show the world how much Christ loves the church by the way you love your wife. The way you love your wife says something about what you believe about the gospel. And wives, you can show the world how much the church reveres Christ by the way you respect and submit to your husbands. That's what Paul is saying here. Two genders, different roles and responsibilities coming together to picture the gospel. Same-sex marriage obscures that. It distorts it. There is no picture of the gospel in same-sex marriage unless we want to come away with some idea that that the church loves the church or Jesus loves Jesus. No, Jesus loves the church Man loves the woman. And that's the picture that's presented. And that's essential to the meaning of marriage. I I know we're at noon here, but let let me close with with three things that I want to say in response in terms of how we should apply this. Everything that we've heard here. How should we respond to this? First thing is we need to repent. Repent. We as Christians need to repent of the ways in which we have allowed promiscuity and infidelity and cohabitation, living together before you're married, to become commonplace, to allow the culture to influence us in this way so that we begin to embrace these things as normal. And rather than shaping the culture, we imitate the culture. We as the church need to be prepared to repent of that. The quote I mentioned earlier in the sermon was that same-sex marriage is the fruit, not the root. What that means is, what that means is this, that same-sex marriage is not really the root of the problem. It's the fruit of other problems that have been going on for a long time. 
And the way our culture and even the church in some places has been so lax on marriage, has looked the other way as people have gotten divorced for no other reason than they're not happy. I know there are legitimate reasons for divorce. I know there are divorced people here. Perhaps there are biblical reasons. But there are a lot of people who get divorced for unbiblical reasons, and the church has just looked the other way. Marriages just go, grow cold. There's distance in the household. There's icy relationships, and husbands and wives are just willing to be content with it. Kids grow up, and they feel it in the household. We need to repent of these things. That's why we've been talking to you today about marriage enrichment. Take advantage of this. Don't wait until your marriage is in crisis. Go to these marriage enrichment classes and learn to enrich your marriage. Our responsibility here is to make marriage look good as best as we can. And I think it's a sad thing that it hasn't always looked so good in the way we've conducted our relationships. Pornography, also a problem for many men in particular. It's driven wedges in between husbands and wives. This weekend, Porn Kills Conference, Friday night, Saturday morning. I know a lot of people sitting in chairs right now are struggling with pornography. There's probably more people in this room than not who struggle with pornography. And I would think that on Friday night, this room would be about this full. We, we are trying to help you with that. It's a, it's a difficult thing, but we want to help you. We're not going to condemn you. We want to help you. So come and learn how to do this. Let's repent of all the ways that we have perpetuated dysfunction in marital relationships. Because what we've done is just pave the way for where we are now in terms of same-sex marriage. Second thing, rally. Let's rally around the single people in our congregation who are struggling with temptation and in particularly in particular let's rally around those single people who have struggled with same-sex attraction and who out of obedience to God have chosen to live a celibate life and are looking to the church to be a family for them we need to be able to respond to that If we're going to say, no, you cannot engage in those desires that you're having, and we're going to call them away from that, we better be ready to walk with them as they seek to deal with those temptations. That's the responsibility of the church, to be a family for those willing to live a solitary life. Last thing, reach out. Let's reach out to those in the LGBT community. Let's reach out to those we know who are struggling with same-sex attraction, to those who are maybe in gay marriages. Let's make it clear to them that we're not against them, but we're for marriage. I'm going to close by just sharing this, this story that captures this so well. Some of you know about Dan Cathy, who is the CEO of Chick-fil-A, and he took this real strong stand against same-sex marriage and caught a lot of flack for that. And there was a, a guy named uh, Steve Windemeyer, um, <clears throat> homosexual man who organized a campaign, a boycott against Chick-fil-A. 
And um, Dan Cathy decided to reach out to this man, Shane Windemeyer, and invited him to a Chick-fil-A bowl game as a personal guest of, of the Cathy family. And um, so they kind of got to know each other. And then Steve Windemeyer, the, the homosexual man, came out and he wrote about this, his experience with Dan Cathy. And I just have to read this to you. Here's what he said. He said, Dan, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. But he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. What a perfect balance for us to reach out and love people in the LGBT community does not mean we have to apologize about marriage. But to stand strong on marriage does not mean we have to view the LGBT community as enemies, because they're not our enemies. We've been received by grace by our God. Let's go forward and receive others by grace that they might know Christ as well. So thank you for your patience. I know we're late. Let's invite the band forward. We'll get ready to close in song. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word, the truth that you give us. And God in heaven, prepare us to... um, to make marriage look good for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.